literature sound like? What stories will we hear if we listen to the archive? Welcome to the Spoken Web Podcast, stories about how literature sounds. My name is Hannah McGregor, and each month I'll be bringing you different stories of Canadian literary history and our contemporary responses to it, created by scholars, poets, students, and artists from across Canada. What happens when we encounter an archive with limited context for its contents? How do the expectations we carry into the archive with us shape our experiences with it and our research within it? The West Coast Women and Words Society was founded in Vancouver in 1982. The following year, it organized the Women and Words Conference, that brought women writers from across Canada together to present, discuss, and debate the state of women's writing, hosting panels like Lesbian Writing and How to Run a Women's Bookstore and Inadequate Coverage of Women's News. In 2021, SFU research assistants Kate Moffat and Candace Sharon began working with the Women and Words collection held at SFU. Kate with the Digital Archive from Alberta, and Candace with the Physical Archive in SFU's Special Collections and Rare Books in Vancouver. Their task was to catalog and properly label the contents of this collection, and they were expecting to find roughly 100 recordings from the famous 1983 conference. What they actually found was a decade's worth of society recordings. Their contents ranging from workshops to student readings, classes to society meetings, and unlabeled music and literary event materials. In this episode, Kate and Candace invite us into their research journey to understand and organize SFU's Women and Words collection. We'll listen to some engaging and some nearly incomprehensible archival recordings from the collection. We'll hear what Kate and Candace learned from the archive about the Women and Words Conference in 1983 and about the Society's annual Westward Writing Retreat. We'll hear how paper materials from the archive were essential to decoding the contents of many mysterious archival tapes. And we'll hear Kate and Candace reflect on what they, as researchers and listeners, brought to these encounters. Here are Kate Moffat and Candace Sharon with Episode 7 of Season 3 of the Spoken Web Podcast, The Archive is Messy and So Are We, Decoding the Women and Words Collection. Folder. Do you yeah, want to just, like, in, look at I'm some in the stuff? Folder. Okay. If you want to go in the Westward 7 folder. Yeah, basically, there are all these posters in the archive for public events that happened alongside, alongside uh, the actual workshops. Were, but they have so them. much information on them. Um, so they like do. This, I'm looking. There's like seven names. Yeah. This this poster. So this is actually the one that I was talking about when I said there was a reading where it was Lee Miracle and Sky Lee, and we have the the recording for Sky Lee reading, but Lee Miracle's not on there, and I don't know why. Mm. Um, 
like you could do all kinds of really interesting historical research using it. Like it's literally, I think like every single piece of paper that this organization ever had. <laughs> In Simon Fraser University's Special Collections and Rare Books, you can find the Women in Words font, a collection made up of more than 100 tapes and 15 boxes of archival materials from the West Coast Women in Words Society, an association founded by Gloria Greenfield with the aim of promoting women's involvement in literary activities that was active between 1982 and 1993 in Vancouver, British Columbia. During that decade, they hosted a major conference, ran annual two-week retreats for aspiring women writers, and organized readings and events. The program from that major 1983 Women in Words conference describes the society's start in 1982 as being inspired by the conference they put on the following year. It reads, At the first meeting on February 10, 1982, we were an eclectic six who arrived with a combination of writing, publishing, editing, printing, and organizing skills. Some of us hadn't met before, but we'd been intrigued by Betsy Warland's idea of a countrywide conference. So we told two friends, and they told two friends, and that first nucleus of women mushroomed into the West Coast Women and Words Society, which was inaugurated with a bottle of champagne in June 1982. Nearly 40 years later, in early 2021, we, Candace Sharon and Kate Moffat, two RAs on the SFU Spoken Web team, were tasked with identifying the audio contents of the font, cataloging its tapes, creating detailed metadata and discerning the names of speakers on the recordings for permissions and rights purposes, as there was little to no pre-existing information about what the collection contained. This episode is about the Women in Words collection at SFU, but it's also about how we encountered it and started to identify its contents. In this episode, we are going to introduce you to the collection, but also talk about the challenges that different types of recordings posed for us and our strategies for drawing on the wider archive to supplement them. Working with this collection highlighted for us the importance of creating and maintaining accurate and detailed metadata to ensure that vital conversations aren't lost in the ether, or in this case, the archival boxes. To understand how we initially approached this collection, you probably need to know that Candace and I are not usually scholars of the 20th century. Our research interests lie with women's writing, but typically from about two centuries earlier. So when we were asked to work on the Women in Words collection, we very cheerfully agreed, and then promptly had to ask what, exactly, Women in Words was in the first place. We were told that the Women in Words collection at SFU held recordings of a fairly famous conference of the same name that took place in Vancouver in 1983, all of which is true. But as it turned out, only about a third of the 115 tapes in the collection are conference recordings. The other two-thirds of the collection were made up of unknown and unstudied entities, many with missing labels and few ways into understanding their contents when we began our work. And so the conference became our context for approaching the rest of it, not least because it was the only portion that we knew about. The scholarship that exists about this collection is by Andrea Beverly, who also worked with a team of research assistants between 2015 and 2017 to create a partial finding aid. But because of her interest in the conference, specifically, only the boxes holding materials related to the conference are highly detailed in the finding aid, making that material much more findable and visible. Our initial conversations with other members of the Spoken Web Network about this collection, including Cole Mash, Mathieu Aubin, and Kara Shearer, understandably replicated this focus. 
and the program, which Special Collections librarian Tony Power located for us while Special Collections was closed to researchers during COVID-19, provided detailed information about the planning and organizing of the conference. Information we would not have for any other events or tapes in the collection until we had well and truly dug into the extensive paper archive months later. And so the conference, it seems, was in some ways established in cultural and archival memory more concretely than the Women and Words Society that organized it. Of course, the conference was kind of a big deal. It focused on the state of and future for women's writing in Canada and brought together nearly 1,000 women writers, editors, publishers, and other literati. As founder Gloria Greenfield's obituary puts it, the famous and the never heard of came together for four days of readings, panels, and workshops on women's literary criticism, Indigenous writing, and how to run a feminist bookshop. And the program included familiar names such as Daphne Marlett, Margaret Atwood, Dorothy Livesay, Carol Shields, and Eleanor Wachtell, among others, in attendance. In the program, the organizers themselves share their hopes for the conference. They write that it began as a fairly selfish act for some of us, a conference. We would invite women we'd like to exchange ideas with, talk, and argue with. We'd spread the word so that women we didn't know yet would be interested and excited enough to join us. It would be bilingual, non-academic, and accessible. We wanted a cultural exchange as well and contacted as many Native women and women from various ethnic backgrounds as we could. The conference would reflect all levels and specialties relating to the written word, and the call went out to writers, readers, critics, editors, publishers, booksellers, librarians, academics, translators, playwrights, and teachers. While the conference does not make up the entire Women in Words fall, it did become our way into it, both in terms of the expectations we had when initially approaching the collection, and as a much-needed source of contextual information for delving into the unknown content. We really came to this collection cold. We initially had no photos of the tapes, no scans of the conference program, and 115 audio files that rarely provided us with the metadata information we were looking for, names of speakers, dates and locations of events, and so on. The conference tapes, despite our difficulties with them too, were grounding and informed much of our learning and reflections about archival organization, the importance of identification, and about the Women in Words Society overall. And it's funny because you can almost hear it. Like you can almost hear something being said. Yeah, no, you you can almost hear it, but it's like... You think like if I just focus a little harder, I'll be able to understand what's being said here. (laughs) It's almost like, you know what it kind of reminds me of? I don't think you've ever seen Twin Peaks. This is a clip from the first tape in the collection. It was the very first thing I heard when I started working on Women in Words. As Kate notes in our conversation, you can almost hear enough to understand what was being said, but not quite, which is part of the experience of working on audio. You end up feeling like if your headphones were slightly better or you could just focus a little more carefully, you would be able to catch some key identifying information. However, at this stage in our work on Women in Words, 
My first reaction was to close the tab in the browser and work on some other collections for a while. In contrast, this was one of the first clips that I listened to, the second tape in the collection. With our subject this morning is women facing uh, traditional criticism, uh, criticizing criticism. We shall begin then with Caroline Flus de l'Université d'Alberta, qui va nous parler brièvement de l'histoire de la critique. She will give us some history of feminist criticism, followed by Luki Bersiani, here on my right, I don't think she needs any introduction at all to the French speakers in the audience, very little, I think, to the English ones, as the author of Lugelion. This one also has some funky audio, but it's easier to hear. Yeah, I think it's just like old audio. a 40-year-old tape. <laughs> it's not like so weird that you can't understand it. So like, it. it's interesting, they, this is such a thorough introduction, and this is not on all the tapes. <laughs> This is not, like, some of the panel tapes start, like, after the panel has started. Yeah, like, someone was like, oh, no, we were supposed to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And some of them do introduce the speakers, but this one is is thorough in a way where it's, like, it's giving us, like, their affiliation. It's giving us their institution. Um, it's giving us what they work on. Like, it's actually giving us a ton of information that we don't even capture in our metadata as much. Although I do think if they'd given us this level of information about every single panel with every single person, it would have made it a lot easier to track some of them down because I think some of the speakers at the conference, this was something interesting to run into and work with, was the fact that like they're not super like findable now. Um, you know, they, they worked in a publishing house and that's all I have in terms of what they did. And so if nobody's written about that or nobody's recorded that, like finding them now and trying to figure out what they're doing now, or trying to contact them for permissions, right? It becomes or find out if they're even still alive. <laughs> exactly, becomes really, really difficult yeah. because they're yeah. they just don't have the same level of um, totally. And yeah. like one of the other things too is um, one of the things I was running into before we had the conference program. Like I was able to kind of figure out from some of them, like you know who was talking, but I didn't necessarily know how to spell names. So you end up with this really weird like yeah. This is so-and-so, and it's like, is it Carolyn with a C? Is it Carolyn right. with a K? Is it Carolyn with, like, a Y or an I? You, yep. you know, yep. Like, how Absolutely. do you spell the name? This audio file was from the Women in Words conference, and it gave me exactly what I was looking for. I got names, the date, the location, the very room they were in, and the name of the panel. This really was our best-case scenario. But as it turned out, for every one tape that gave us all of the metadata we needed, like this one, no questions asked, were easily two or three that had questionable audio or contained little to no information about what exactly I was listening to. What we could get from the recordings themselves was wildly inconsistent. The scan of the conference program and images of the tapes that Tony sent us were critical to developing a workflow for systematically identifying and creating metadata for the tapes from the conference. No longer were we listening to audio files of varying quality, hoping in vain to hear a date or a speaker's name through hiccups and warbling. We had the names of panels on the tapes, the names of the speakers in each panel on the conference program, and a color-coded spreadsheet, my fave, to help us match them to each other. But the rest of the collection required further research. Once the restrictions began lifting, I was able to head into the reading room in search of that context. Because Kate was located in Calgary, she couldn't join me, meaning that the boxes of undigitized materials in the archive remained completely unavailable to her, except by way of the pictures I sent her, primarily through WhatsApp messages and emails, 
often with exclamatory captions about their contents. These conversations made us think about how our different experiences of encounter shaped our respective understanding of both the paper archive and the dozens of hours of audio in the collection. We realized, for example, that working with the conference first helped us begin to understand the kinds of archival material we were going to need to understand and tackle the collection as a whole. It familiarized us, or perhaps a better word is it prepared us for, how much information we could likely expect to find in the audio recordings themselves, often very little, with what information we could expect to find on original tape labels, and with the role that the other Women in Words archival materials were going to play in our overall ability to decode the audio archive, and really, the history of the Women in Words Society, too. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it hard to, like, ground yourself in in something. You know what I mean? And I think yeah. the collection, I think the conference tapes actually helped do that for us a little bit mm-hmm. with the collection more more broadly. It, like, gave us, like, a leg to stand on a yeah. little bit. Well, it kind of in terms like, of like well, these things are obviously from the conference, so what are yes. all these other things? What are we going to do with yeah. them? How do we identify exactly. them? Exactly. Exactly. Okay, and even names. Like, I feel like working with the conference introduced Mm -hmm. us to hundreds of names that show up in other recordings and papers. And so, like, as somebody who doesn't study, like, Canadian writing and doesn't, Mm -hmm. like, um, doesn't study, you know, poetry, that was so interesting. Like, I felt like I was being introduced to these people and getting to, like, so -hmm. when I started, like, I've started recognizing names now. So, like, I'll be listening to something and they'll be like, oh, Luki Bersianic. And I'm like... I recognize that name from listening yeah. to the conference tapes. <laughs> and and that's cool because I wouldn't have recognized it otherwise. Like that was, that made a yeah. difference in how I was able to understand the other tapes. And I think like as someone who I definitely don't study um, like 20th century Canadian writing at all. Um, but as someone who did a, a PhD at SFU and spent a lot of time around people who did right, work right, on right, 20th right. century poetry, there's like names in this collection that I kind of recognize or that have a kind of like right. name recognition value, but I haven't really engaged with their work. So it's yeah. really interesting, I think, coming to them by way of this, these conference tapes. Or While the conference program helped us sort out what was going on with the tapes from the conference, it didn't solve the problem of what to do with the tapes from the other events, many of which had even less descriptive labels. Again, we found that further archival materials were needed to understand what we were listening to. But unlike with the conference, it wasn't clear what kinds of documents might help us. Fortunately, by the time we'd finished working through the conference recordings, Special Collections was open again to researchers, albeit in a limited capacity. So I could go in myself and try to find documents that might be helpful. However, deciding where to start wasn't as easy as it sounded. The partial finding aid had a very detailed inventory of the contents of box one, with brief and patchy notes about the contents of the remaining boxes. Since the labels on most of the remaining tapes were from a series of annual events called Westward and included the years following the 1983 Women in Words Conference, I determined that boxes six through nine would probably be the best place to start. But I still didn't really know what Westward was, how the Women in Words collection was organized, or what kinds of documents I was looking for. Cue a few special collections visits spent aimlessly skimming tax records and reading submissions of dozens of poems and essays for a 1985 campaign called Peace Write, in which writers sent short fiction, poetry, and prose nonfiction about nuclear war to the Women in Words Society, and successful submissions were forwarded to MPs as an act of protest. 
While I didn't initially find much that would help us create metadata for the unidentified tapes, working through the boxes did allow me to start to understand what exactly the organization was and how events and initiatives like Westward and PeaceWright fit into the larger structure. In particular, I learned that Westward was an annual two-week writing retreat and workshop organized by the Women in Word Society that divided participants up into genre-specific workshops, usually poetry, fiction, and creative documentary, although one year branched out to include a speculative fiction group. Each group had an instructor, usually someone fairly high profile like Dion Brand or Liam Maracle. The workshops culminated in student readings, which make up a number of the tapes from the Westward events, and which I couldn't really find any programs for. These presented their own set of problems. I also found a submission to PeaceWrite from a Canadian children's writer that my friends and I read obsessively during the 90s. So that was pretty cool. But like one of, so yeah, like one of the the sort of subcategories of tapes that we have that are like probably the hardest ones to identify other than the ones that were just like, mystery event, 1982, here's a woman's <laughs> name. <laughs> um, or like, like those ones are okay, but like they don't have quite, like we don't have posters for them that I've been able to find that were in the boxes I was looking at. Um, but uh there are a bunch of recordings of students from westward so people who participated in these workshops and Mm. they are like some of the weirdest ones to try and work with because you kind of know like roughly the date you know that it's like the fiction workshop from westward that year um but because they're literally recordings of people who have been hanging out with each other for two weeks there's not really any like introduction Right, there's a level of familiarity already in there. It's already established. Yeah, and they're just, it's like an in-group reading to each other. So you don't need to be like, this is so-and-so, and and this is, you know, like everyone already knows. (laughs) Except (laughs) for us, we don't know. (laughs) What we do have in the archive are student lists. Mm. So there's like a list of which students participated or, well, it's, it's interesting. There's actually a lot of probably quite sensitive information in these of um, like, it's like student contact forms where it's like, this is the person's name. This is the genre workshop that they want to be in. So do they want to be in the fiction workshop? Do they want to be in the poetry workshop? Are they in the creative documentary workshop? This is their mailing address. This is their emergency contact. This is their phone number. This is, um, so it's like, it's, it's their files. Yeah. It's like, this is the room that they stayed in. Um, so there's things like that in here, um, which I think could, Potentially, like, if someone really wanted to go down that rabbit hole, you could really figure out, like, which students are on which recordings. And it's actually, like, there's so, so much in there. Um, So much. That tells us so much about, like, women's writing in the 80s. Yeah, and, like, honestly, even even the, like, tax records are, like, a treasure trove of Of information information. (laughs) that could tell you a lot about like how how charitable organizations survived in the 80s or in the early 90s you know like you could do all kinds of really interesting historical research using it like it's literally I think like every single piece of paper that this organization ever had right yeah (laughs) yeah it's a very like it's very word I'm looking for and it's almost it's very organic I think in a very interesting way that like, I don't think it was ever really collected as like, we're putting together an archive. Like it doesn't feel that way. (laughs) Um, 
And I mean, this is me looking at it from from the outside. So please correct me if you're like, yeah. no, I was looking at it. It felt kind of organized. And I think you've mentioned that like it has like a kind of like an internal organization, but it does feel very organic. It feels like here's all of our stuff. We should probably save it for later. Yeah. And then that and, and then that turned into the archive. And so it wasn't like it wasn't archived by the society people on purpose with like the intention of it being really organized. Here is and, the like, portrait we want to create of the society. Exactly. It feels yeah. very organic um, and well, messy. It's like, like the way it's In organized, really I would say, way. is it's like it's organized the way someone who was like doing the filing for an organization would organize things. So there's like right. the box that is like all the tax records and the hiring records and like all that kinds of stuff. Like grant applications are all together, um, organized by year. Um, the Westward stuff is kind of all together. So you've got like Westward five and it's got like all the applications and then like all the letters that they sent to students about their applications and whether they were accepted or not. And like letters to all the students about their So there is like an internal organization. But there's just so much of it that like, if you're coming, it's not like this is the box from 1988. There's like 1988 Westward, 1988 tax records, 1988, like other readings. In addition to student readings, these annual workshops had public events attached to them, which were the source for many of the other recordings with Westward labels, and which were represented in the paper archive through event posters and financial records of honoraria. These documents allowed us to identify the readers on the tapes, but also some curious absences. For example, one recording from a Westward 7 reading in 1991 has two readers named on the poster, but only one on the recording. Whether it is because the second reader did not consent to being recorded or because they were not present at all is not clear from the tape or any other documents. One of these public events was a reading by Sharon Thiessen on August 18, 1987 at Westward 3. With a tape that only provided Thiessen's name and the date of the reading, the paper archive was what ended up providing many of the necessary details for us both an event poster confirming the time and place, as well as the press release for Westward 3 from February that year, according to a penciled-in, handwritten note on the page, confirmed that this reading is from when Thiessen was the guest reader for one of the public events hosted by Westward at the UBC campus. The event, which we'll be sharing a clip of, includes a fascinating meditation by Thiessen on her actual writing practice, as well as some self-reflective analysis of what she's doing in her poetry and how she's doing it. Canadian poet Sharon Thiessen is the author of 12 books of poetry, as well as a number of chapbooks. She is now Professor Emerita at UBC Okanagan, where recordings of her poetry readings are also part of the Soundbox collection. I have a little speech. Do you want to do it now or would you like to have a break? I'll do it now. Okay. <laughs> now, I, I shouldn't say, I mean speech, it's... Uh, I was um, rather intimidated by the prospect of speaking about my experience as a woman poet and um, couldn't do it and I thought well I can't just do that off the cuff and so I'll have to write a paper and then it got later and later and so I I, uh, wrote a few notes and I'd like to just um, throw these out and see if you can pick anything up that's of use. Uh, I'm certainly talking about myself and hope to maybe raise some questions that may be of interest to you. Um, Thinking of my experience as a woman writer, I'm sort of torn between two extremes. One, 
simply the anecdotal, you know, what has happened to me as a woman writer, uh, you know, and uh, we all have our horror stories. Um, then there's the condition of woman writer that we all know about and all share, and, uh, you know, the levels and layers of silence and oppression and so on. And then there's what I would call the propositional, which is to um, ex uh, try to uh, describe uh, sort of feminine poetics that I, I feel is operating in my work. But most of the time I feel that that sort of thing is often better discerned by others. Better discerned by others. Um, because I don't feel that I have a particular project as far as poetics goes. I know only that I want to feel like writing a certain kind of poem, like the love poems to the mothers-in-law are coming up now, or uh, the husbands and so on. I mean, um, uh, it, those are the subjects that are appearing to me. And um, so I thought, well, you know, I'll just mention a few things. Um, I was thinking about the I in, in writing, the me and the I, uh, staying with the I because that's, uh, that's the clearest. Um, and, uh, and was thinking about the beginnings of some recent poems that I've written where the I sound is very prominent in the first few lines, but the capital I, self, me, doesn't appear. It's simply full of I's, the sounds, so that it becomes an I diffused in language in the world, which is the I, precisely the I, that I want the poem to reveal. That is the I diffused in language in the world. I want that poem to reveal that I to myself as much as to the reader. An I that points to and is suffused with existence. And I'll just read you some of these opening lines and listen to the eyes. The long grass leans toward the right. Above us, the starry night is a slow carousel of birthdays. How many will mention the full moon tonight? Being poets, we might be tempted. One-eyed, one-tongued night, yield me a trace of myself. 8.45, night has arrived. Well, night, night, night. Now, it so happens that one of the conditions of being a woman writer is you can only write at night. So, there's one. Um, after everything else is done. I still haven't been able to <clears throat> get around that. So in the beginnings of these poems, the I sound, as well as the I of the poem, is an occasion of night, indicating not only the domestic circumstance and the literally the physical ambience at the time of writing. I always, in my writing, go into the world first. That was poet Sharon Thiessen, invited guest reader at one of the public reading events for Westward Three in August 1987 at the Vancouver School of Theology on the UBC campus in Vancouver, British Columbia. Alongside our listening for data, primarily for dates, names, and locations, we were lucky enough to often get distracted by listening to wonderful audio recordings like this one, which are opportunities to feel, 30-some-odd years later, like we are also able to attend these incredible events where poets like Thiessen read poetry and even discuss their own practices. I think like there's a kind of interesting like thing happening in the reading where on the one hand it's it's the way she's talking is quite intimate and she's clearly right. thinking about like her own 
what she can take from her own practice to like give to other people who are working on their writing. Um, but also like, I, I find just the way she's talking about how she's like nervous. So she like scripted herself. Yeah. So it, like there's a kind of yeah like both informal and formal um I also think it like it's really interesting how she kind of starts it by saying like I don't really want to analyze my own writing like that's something that someone else would do better than me and then she goes on to actually offer like this really cool um analysis of like what she calls the distributed eye yeah so so she starts by saying like I can't analyze my own writing other people will find more interesting things in it than I will and then she goes on to have this really cool reading of her own poem right that she's you know saying well I don't ever use the word I but I have all these other I sounds in it like night and I don't remember all of them but height and and then she goes on and kind of does this whole like feminist reading of it and being like well obviously night is in there because that's where I do my writing and like after dark and you know after all the other like responsibilities are gone kind of thing so yeah I don't know I just I think there's like a really really interesting kind of tension playing out on like different levels in this in this recording with this reading if you look at the tape the tape label has a date it has mm. um, tells us it's on the 17th of August, 1987. It has the reader, so it tells us the reader's Sharon Thiessen. Um, and then it also, on the back, says Kant Creative Doc. So it's also the, the flip side of the tape, the side B, has part of the creative documentary reading. However, um, when you look at... Like, there's nothing on here that says, oh, this is part of Westward or part of Westward 3. Um, But I did find the poster for the event (laughs) that said it was part of Westward 3, which kind of makes sense because it's like once you once you figure out the Westward structures, you're like, oh, it's in August. Westward always happens for two weeks in August. (laughs) Um, Oh, creative documentary is like one of the Westward workshops. But it also, so one of the things that I think was interesting about this one is that on the poster, um, the poster says actually the date is Tuesday, August 18th. So I haven't actually looked at a calendar from 1987 to be like, was Tuesday the 18th or the 17th? Which one's the correct one? Does it really matter? Probably not, but I'm curious. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, it's not just that like, this is I think maybe like another way that, you know, you have to look at the materials together. Mm to kind of like suss out what's actually. Yeah, I like that. I feel like this tape, I feel like this tape is such a cool example of that tension I was talking about where it's like, it's so interesting to be listening and looking to, at these tapes with this like, okay, I need to find metadata brain happening. But then yeah. listening to the tapes and getting distracted by the contents because they're they're so, they're so good. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of listening is still so important. It's not necessarily like a, a distractedness um, so much as it's like a, a listening, right? And listening, I think, is always yeah. useful. But it is very... Um, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to justify, like, sitting down and listening to, like, 90 minutes of recorded material that you know isn't really going to give you the thing you're looking for when you've got this, like, massive collection of, like, things you need to identify. <laughs> and this makes me think of something that I actually had a conversation with 
a group of people at a, a recent listening party for the Spoken Web podcast, which is invisible listening. And the amount of invisible labor that goes into working with a big collection and, and you know, to do many things, but to do something like put together a podcast episode that's going to have select pieces or clips and the amount of listening that goes into that that doesn't actually create visible labor afterwards. While the question of whether the reading was on August 17th or August 18th, 1987 is small in the grand scheme of the Spoken Web project or even just the Women in Words collection, the interplay of the tape label, the poster, and the audio file speaks to the complexity of identifying and creating metadata for these recordings. Many of the tapes in this collection don't stand alone, but exist in a complex ecosystem of different types of documents and documentation. When different materials contradict each other, it forces us to ask ourselves how we assign authority to these materials. Do we trust the speaker, the person who made the event poster, or the person who wrote the date and the name of the speaker on the tape? Actually, and it's interesting, I feel like a couple of the tapes even kind of start to speak to like their level of not renowned that goes that sounds really weird but like um I think it's one of the tapes where they're just so clear with their introductions and they're like this is I think it's the Luki Bersianic panel that she's on um but they're like this is Luki Bersianic I don't think she needs any introduction for our French audiences and probably not very much for our English ones either and then just kind of like moves on she like mentions like oh yeah she's the author of of this important work that I don't think I was familiar with. And but then she moves on to her. introducing the rest of the people on the panel. I know me neither. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. this person's important or was really important at the time. And I'm, I think she is still important now. Like yeah. I think I've seen her name now quite a few times throughout, but it was an interesting way to be introduced to these people, especially if it's like mm-hmm. she had that level of familiarity or people had that level of familiarity with her back in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but now we don't. I mean, as people who don't study it, that kind of makes sense. But at the same time, yeah. I think that's interesting, too, that it's just something we're not but, super familiar with. But we're with. also, like, people who don't necessarily study it, but we're not, like, totally uninformed people. We're not people mm-hmm. who are, like, totally yeah. outside of this world. Um, yeah. Yeah, so there's, yeah. like, like I recognized of... Phyllis, like, I recognized Phyllis Webb because I took a poetry class during undergrad, and, you yeah. know, Steve Collis taught Phyllis Webb. So, like, yeah. I recognized her name in the collection. Yeah, it was actually funny... Um, I, I was, cause I moved, um, recently I was going through all my books and like packing up books. Um, and there was this book of poetry that I think I had picked up at some, like, I don't know. It was like some book sale that was on that a friend dragged me to. That was just like secondhand books just on tables everywhere for like very <laughs> I little love money. those. I love those I so much. And we just spent ages going through them. And I picked up this book because I think I thought the um like the cover was interesting and I was like, it's 50 cents, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a book by someone who is in the Women in Words collection. And I was oh, like that's cool. pruning through my books, trying to like figure out what to keep and what to get rid of. And I was like, what is this book? Where did I find it? And then I was like, oh my God, this is, I got this at this book sale. And this is Nicole Broussard, who is in the Women in Words collection. She and I had is. a book by oh, her so the entire funny. time I was working on this collection. <laughs> My unexpected encounter with one of the writers included in the Women in Words collection on my own bookshelves highlights the importance of naming individual speakers on the tapes. The more you see a name pop up in one context, 
the more likely you are to recognize or remember that name when it pops up in another. Although the conference recordings were created with wider distribution in mind, most of the other tapes in this collection were created to act as private or semi-private records of events, whether they were public readings, instructor orientations for workshops, or radio programs. Unlike a tape produced for commercial distribution with its detailed production information and liner notes, these amateur tape recordings, most of which have handwritten labels, don't readily identify themselves. Now that we know the names of many of the speakers in the Women in Words collection, we see them everywhere, whereas before they might not have caught our attention. In this case, creating metadata for the Women in Words collection allowed us to organize and identify the people and books that were already all around us. But simply identifying events and speakers is only the first step, and one that we hope will draw attention to elements of the collection that deserve more attention than what we could give in this single podcast episode. For example, our engagement with both the recordings and the paper archive made it clear to us that from the society's inception, there were tensions between society members of different races, classes, and sexualities, that our position as newcomers to the collection and interlopers in the field meant we were not well positioned to grapple with. However, the descriptive metadata that we created for many of the tapes might very well help a future researcher to locate and analyze these recordings. Um, should we talk a little bit about the archive yeah, you stuff? Wanna, are you I want to just chat folder? about like. You want to just like look at some stuff? Yeah, I'm in the, okay. I'm in the folder. If you want to go in the Westward Seven folder, um, there are like two pictures of the same poster because I was not very organized in in taking these. Um, okay. But yeah, basically there are all these posters in the archive for public events that happened alongside. Um, alongside uh, the actual workshops. Um, and this is basically the, one of the only ways to figure out like what is happening with these tapes, like where the events were. What but they the have so was. much information Who talking on them. On them. Um, so like this... They do. I'm looking. There's like yeah, this this poster. So this is actually the one that I was talking about when I said there was a reading where it was Lee Miracle and Sky Lee. Um, and we have the the recording for Sky Lee reading, but Lee Miracle's not on there. And I don't know why. Um, mm. So it's, yeah, it's interesting because it's like the, the paper archive tells us one thing, but if you actually go and listen to the tape, it's something else going on. Like it's mm. just part of it. Yeah. Which is actually so, which is actually so interesting because we were mm-hmm. very like, ah, the tapes aren't telling us everything. We need the paper archive. But now we're looking at the paper archive and it's also like, that also doesn't tell us everything. We also need the audio. Like, it's a very, like, what's it called? Like a symbiotic relationship? (laughs) Is that what it is? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely, like, a kind of... You can't just look at one or just look at the other to figure out what's going on. You have to kind of listen to the tape and look at the material. Um, But also, like, they just have so much information on them. Like, they tell you the date and the time um sometimes it's even like room information this one there's like an additional reading by maria campbell that was held at a different venue um so the westward was like hosted at the canadian international college 
in North Vancouver, whereas the Maria Campbell reading that's so much information. The Native on Education Poster. Center at on East Fifth Avenue, which is like a place that I've been to. Like a lot of these, it's so <laughs> that's yeah, cool. I, honestly, I didn't really expect that's cool when I started working on this collection. How like into um, being like, oh, I've been to that place, or like, oh, I know where that used to be, or like right. things like that. But it's a really interesting yeah. that actually it reminds me of what you were saying, like as people who have you know, been in the SFU English department, which has like a, a very active kind of like poetry faculty, right? That we have been exposed to kind of like some of these names and some of these ideas and some of these like waves of poetry and people. But then also that coming at it from like a different side, we also are like, you know, we've lived in Vancouver, we've been to some of these places and that's where this took place. So like we kind of have this, it's interesting because we're like, oh, we came to this collection so cold, but it's like, maybe yeah. we didn't really. The grad you know? conference in the English department, <laughs> has been held at the Native Education Center right. multiple times right. and I've like two yeah. panels there. Yeah. Like it's interesting to think that like so we have cool. more context for this, I think, than yeah. we than we realized maybe. That there is actually some information that we brought to it. I know. We're not We're actually, not actually going, going, going quite as blind. blind exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're just going in with a different, I think, like piece of information. Yeah, different parts of the puzzle. Spoken Web is a monthly podcast produced by the Spoken Web team as part of distributing the audio collected from and created using Canadian literary archival recordings found at universities across Canada. Our producers this month are Kate Moffat and Candace Sharon. Our podcast project manager and supervising producer is Judith Burr. Our episodes are transcribed by Kelly Cubbon. A special thanks to Tony Power and Special Collections and Rare Books at SFU. To find out more about Spoken Web, visit SpokenWeb.ca and subscribe to the Spoken Web podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen. If you love us, let us know. Rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or say hi on our social media at Spoken Web Canada. Stay tuned to your podcast feed later this month for Shortcuts with Catherine McLeod, mini stories about how literature sounds. <laughs>